Hi everyone, my name is Laura Senior Garcia. I'm the COO of Equilibria and I'm delighted to be on today's podcast with you. Welcome to our Realizing Potential podcast. Today's topic is staying calm and dealing with stress. And we're actually going to be learning some lessons from a US Navy fighter pilot. Uh, his name is Dan Baxter. Uh, he is a US Navy uh, retired commander and he's also the uh, Chief Customer Officer with Equilibria. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Laura, from sunny Magnolia, Texas, just outside Houston. Uh, really excited to be here today. And we're actually talking about a topic that's near and dear to my heart because uh, it was something I had to really overcome uh, in my military career and, and, and really afterwards as well. So. Really excited to uh, be with you today and talk about this. Awesome. Thank you so much for making the time, Dan. I really think our listeners are going to get a lot uh, from your perspective, especially given your background. So on that note, I just want to give a little bit of background. However, I will ask Dan to provide uh, more in-depth details since although he doesn't like to talk about himself, I do think it's important for the listeners to understand just your perspective and what you're bringing to the table. So Dan Baxter, as mentioned, is a 24-year veteran and naval officer who started his career at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in economics. Now, one thing that's one thing. However, Dan, I understand that you have a very wide and diverse background when it comes to flying different aircrafts, when it comes to very interesting mission. So would you be okay sharing a little bit more about that with the listeners? Sure. I'll go ahead and share it. Um, I don't like to be the cliche fighter pilot you see in the movies uh, who always is talking about themselves, but I do think that given a little bit more background will uh, inform some of the conversation and stories we're going to talk about a little bit later. So I, I was lucky enough to get in and then graduate from the Naval Academy, as you said. Uh, I, I earned an opportunity to go into naval aviation, which is something I wanted to do. And uh, after graduation, it took me about three years, but I uh, graduated the flight training program, which is pretty intensive, and was fortunate enough to select uh, fighter aircraft or strike fighter aircraft um, out of that graduation. You know, you can either get helicopters or propeller aircraft, all very important missions. And then some people get to go fly fighter planes off of uh, aircraft carriers in the United States Navy. So I was fortunate enough to do that, got to essentially live the dream, uh, fly F-14A Tomcats, did that for a number of years before I went on to be an instructor in the F-18EF, uh, what we called affectionately the Rhino, it was also known as the Super Hornet. And then later on in my career, I would get to go then fly the uh, original version of the f 18 uh, Charlie called the Hornet, and that was where I would eventually uh, command my own fighter squadron, VFA-146 Blue Diamonds. had the wonderful opportunity to be selected for that lead, a little over 220 officer enlisted men and women, diverse people from all over the world, and from different walks in life. And uh, throughout my career flying aircraft, uh, I accumulated over uh, about 3,200 hours total and a little over, uh, well, a little over 700, actually 720 carrier 
landings or arrestments off nine different aircraft carriers. And it was an absolutely wonderful career. I, I loved the flying early on, as you might imagine, as a young person, but it was really the people and the professionals and getting to work with them every day that kind of kept me in. So uh, really enjoyed it. Great, thank you for that. And I love how you talk about all those hours flying aircrafts or you know, landing an aircraft on an aircraft carrier, like it's uh, you know something that is an everyday thing. So I, I just really appreciate uh, the, the perspective you're gonna bring to this. So on that note, going back to our, our subject for today, or the main focus for our conversation. If you think about you know, what people are going through right now, uh, it is a pretty uh, stressful time with everything that's going on. And I think we are in a great position to tap into your thought leadership and expertise around how to deal with stress and staying calm uh, in specific um, crisis situations, you could say, or in, or in particularly stressful situations. So. One of the things that you mentioned that you did repeatedly, that it sounds at least to to me as a non-military uh, background or non-Navy background person, it would be landing on an aircraft carrier. So could you tell us a little bit about how you dealt with the stress of landing on an aircraft carrier? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting is that's one of the more common questions I think anybody who's flown off aircraft carriers will get from people because everyone has a, a, a view, whether it be from a movie or reading that they've done, where they've, uh, you know, really tried to say, oh, you know, I've read something that says landing on an aircraft carriers, like, you know, jumping onto a postage stamp in, in a uh, dark room and, you know, and it's moving, you know, that must be so difficult. So people are very fascinated by it, and uh, it is a common question. I think it's a great question in the context of what we're going to talk about. For me personally, it took me a while to get there, to get that opportunity, but it was actually my first time landing on the aircraft carrier that really taught me the most about how I personally deal with stress and how the process the military taught me and trained me up to that point, readied me for stress. And really it has helped me, it helped me throughout the, the remainder of my career and, and subsequent career outside the Navy. So I think it's a good story to queue up and talk about how to deal with stress when landing on an aircraft carrier. But before I, I tell the, uh, the story of my first landing, I just wanna set the stage. It's really important to understand that in my particular case, I went to four years in Naval Academy. And whether you go there to a regular college and through ROTC, you're spending a, a, an extensive amount of time studying and readying yourself to earn a commission in the United States Navy. I did that. And then another three years going through what would some would consider to be like a master's program in flying. And once, and at the end of that, three years for me, the very last thing you do, the very last syllabus is, if, especially if, you know, when you're going to, to be a jet pilot, the very last thing you do is go to the aircraft carrier to qualify or not to qualify. And if you wind up being unable to pass that test, you may get one extra try if you just didn't meet the grades, but obviously didn't kill yourself or do something really unsafe. So, but once so, you, 
Yeah, but once you... So, sorry, but, so, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Dan, just, uh, I, I would like to ask you something just for our for our listeners, because I think the first time you, you told me this, I didn't actually realize how how much of an impact what you just said actually has on, on someone's career that's going through that same process. So you're saying that after seven years of dedication, in your case, in other people's cases, maybe you know four years, but seven years in your case, it's down to that one time, or maybe if you're very lucky, two times that you get to either either pass or fail. Is is that correct? Yeah, believe it or not, it is. So all those tax dollars, you you really have a lot riding on whether or not you can eventually rise to the occasion and qualify. And that's just to be able to get the opportunity to then go learn your trade craft. You know, think about right after you get your master's degree. You still got to go get a job and deliver on it. But the only reason I, I, I give that background is just the, the gravity of how much you've invested in it, how much you've built it up in your head that you must succeed here, you know, at that point in time. So imagine you've got all that and then just now you're going to actually go land on the aircraft carrier. So in my case, I was going to go out to the USS John C. Stennis uh, flying a T-45 Goshawk, which is a single engine training jet. So I go out there and I um, it's daytime and I roll out behind the aircraft about uh, 500 feet and I roll out onto center line and my very first thought right then and there as I'm pointed at the aircraft carrier at say, you know, about 140 miles per hour, my very first thought is, man, this thing's huge. This doesn't seem so bad. And subsequently, I wound up, uh, you know, landing and really looking forward to the next time around because I thought, wow, that was really amazing. That was, uh, I really enjoyed that. That, you know, that was that was fun. And so I go on to qualify. I fly back out to what we call the beach or back to land, and I land. And that's where we would then go into the ready room and wait to get the phone call from the aircraft carrier where the instructors would say. Dan Baxter is a qual or Dan Baxter is a DQ or a disqual. So that, you know, that term DQ, we, we hated. Matter of fact, you wouldn't even go eat Dairy Queen during the, the workups prior to the aircraft carrier, just because uh, we all, you know, are a little bit uh, superstitious. But I'm sitting there waiting in the ready room for the call as to whether or not I passed, had enough grades uh, or high enough grades and a high enough boarding rate. And I'm sitting there looking around and up to that point, I had been very average at best. I wasn't the best, I wasn't the worst. I was right in the middle of grades in preparation for the actual landing on the aircraft carrier. And that's all the practices we do at the field beforehand. And I'm looking around the room and I see a good friend of mine who was our number one student pilot peer of mine. And he was somewhat the water walker you know, always had the highest grades. Everybody knew he was the best and he was number one going into this carrier landing um, final phase. And I see him and he is completely drenched. His flight suit, it looks like someone has sprayed him completely down. And, you know, he, he, he looks stressed and he's sitting there and he's like me, he's waiting on to hear whether or not he passed. So I go up to talk to him. And I, I said, hey, you know, what's going on? 
And he goes, well, how do you think it went? I said, you know, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Uh, and it wasn't as bad as I thought. And he goes, are you kidding me? He goes, I rolled out behind that thing. I kept just thinking if I pull too much power, how I could hit the back of the boat. And uh, man, you know, that was just really intense. And I am thinking to myself, holy mackerel, I didn't think one of those negative thoughts whatsoever. And so I think the value of it was he passed, I passed. I did a lot better than he did. Uh, I, I actually did really well, well beyond what my normal grades would be or break out amongst my peers. And what I realized when I reflected upon that is very informative for me going forward was my attitude in going into that was very positive, but more importantly, my perception of the situation was so different than his that it really helped me navigate what I guess would be the natural stressors to other people. So I think that's the really key thing that I started to really plan around things that I thought might be stressful is how to perceive them differently so that I could perform. Wow, that that is a fascinating story. Thank you very much, Dan. And I think two things that we can start uh, picking up on as we go for takeaways for, for myself and for the listeners, as we hear you share some of these things. So you said attitude and perspective. So those two things are something that you had choice over, that you were able to deliberately pick your attitude or choose the attitude you were going to have uh, or choose the perspective that you wanted to look through when it came to that situation. So apart from your own attitude and perspective, could you share with us what are some of the, the skills or, or training that the Navy had given you prior to that or even continue to give you after that to prepare you uh, to stay calm during very stressful situations? Or maybe you even had to impart some of these skills on other people later in your career, but really interested to know what are some of the tools basically or the, the way that they prepare you to be able to stay calm during these extreme situations? Yeah, the Navy uses something called part-task training. It's a building block approach um, on how to give you any skill set, whether it be flying a plane or, you know, figure outing a problem. And one of the things that most people don't understand about, you see the movies about people getting screamed at and, you know, uh, going through some sort of intense training early on in their, you know, military career. What people don't understand is, that is very purposeful part-task training that they are they are doing for a reason. And so I'll give you an example. So I, I happen to go through more of these programs than your average Navy guy. I went, you know, call me a glutton for punishment, but I volunteered and, uh, you know, I wasn't sent there by the judge or anything, but I did go to military high school when I was 14 up in uh, Pennsylvania. And that's a full-time, you know, being away from home type thing other than the summer. And your very first year there, just like a service academy like the Naval Academy or West Point, is called a plebe year. So you have this whole first year where they're really purposely giving you artificial stressors as part of this part-task training. So when I went to the Naval Academy, it was my second iteration of that. So it was much easier for me to navigate, but it really was very much about the same thing. You got people yelling at you. 
um, you've got multiple people yelling at you and why is that important? Well, they're trying to uh, emote the physiological reaction that most people have when they hear loud noises or get yelled at or feel personally affronted. And then when multiple people yell at you, it creates confusion and confusion usually raises the anxiety of most people. And they're trying to artificially do this one to uh, see how, help you teach yourself on how to deal with it appropriately and also give you the confidence that you can be successful despite these situations. And so later on, another building block approach beyond just dealing with the those things is then being able to recite or spit out information or do certain things in very specific order or say words in very verbatim responses. And why is that important? Well, again, it's a building block approach to be able to teach you to do something deliberate and intentional during times of stressful situations so that you can be successful. And as you train and do things multiple times over and over, whether it's something like that or you know playing tennis or something like that, you know you gain personal confidence by being able to do it over and over again successfully. And so that was that's a building block that we all get in the military. And how that translated into aviation is think about when you're in a combat situation, for instance, you hear somebody screaming over the radio, they're very excited. Why is that? Because they're getting shot at. You can actually hear the gunfire in the background and the screaming of their own people trying to get help or trying to make a combat maneuver. And you hear this in the background, plus you've got the people talking to you about what you're doing in your own airplane. And that could be stressful if you had not been trained for it. And so I looked at that and I thought, wow, you know, that's a great preparation because here I am having to do very intentional and specific with no error things under this high stress situation where people are yelling, multiple people are yelling. And so it's a great building block approach to teach you how to calm yourself and and focus on what it is you're trying to do. That That is, it's interesting, Dan, because I was listening to you describe these situations that you've been in and I could literally almost feel myself uh, getting stressed. That, I mean, that, that must have been uh, very extreme in some situations. And, you know, just to think that you have always kind of took a very leader-centric approach. And one of the things I just remembered as I was listening to you is one of the first times that we met, you told me that all those situations, including... I guess you've been through something similar to what they call Hell Week. Yeah, well, it's, uh, boy, I, I would never say that I've done, been through anything similar to the Navy SEALs, but all, all people who could be in a situation where they could get captured in country, whether you're an aviator or not, go through something called SEER, SEER training. And essentially, this is a specific training evolution you go through that helps you learn how to survive, evade, and um, maybe deal with capture and escape. And, and so this, this training is to, again, help you have the skills, practice the skills, and gain the confidence that you could survive something that would be, uh, no doubt, a very difficult mental and physical thing if you were to have to eject 
and have to evade capture and then God forbid ever be captured, how you could come home with dignity and actually survive it both mentally and physically. And so we went through this training and I think it brings up a, a good storyline because although I only went through the training, uh, you know, we're talking about staying calm and, uh, you know, dealing with stress. There's a much better example than just my training in SEER school, although I learned a lot about myself going through that. I think great training does that for you as it teaches you more about yourself. That's why I really thought it was high quality training. But, you know, I've read and, and maybe some of your listeners who've read the book Good to Great or, or just really are, you know, historic buffs would have read about Admiral James Stockdale. And he was someone who's highly renowned. And most, uh, at least one of the ways he's really uh, respected is not only was he the admiral, not only was he a leadership um, icon in the United States Navy, he also was someone who spent seven years in Hanoi Hilton as a prisoner of war as the senior officer. And not, what that means is being the senior officer, he was a great leader, so he would take on extra, you know, he. If someone else uh, was in bad shape and was going to get tortured, he would raise his hand and say, let me take that on so that that person isn't burdened with that. So, he, you know, already in a bad situation, making it harder himself because he was a great leader. But he, he had something that um, people interviewed him afterward and said, how could you take on so much more and survive where other people did not survive? So, again, stressful situation. How do you stay calm? How do you? How do you come back with your dignity and your mental faculties about you? And they started to call this, his answer, the Stockdale paradox. And essentially what he said is, he was trying to describe how somebody like him could go through that and survive compared to someone else who went through the exact same thing, maybe for less time and didn't survive. And, and what he said was that during a horrific period like that, where you might be reportedly, uh, repeatedly tortured and maybe have no reason to believe that you'll make it out alive, um, he was able to deal with the fact that his, his current reality was pretty grim, but he also had this enduring optimism that he would somehow survive. And so... You know, I think he was quoted as saying, you'll never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And so imagine that being able to say, I understand that today is going to be a bad day, but I know somehow, some way I'm going to win. I know somehow, some way it's going to work out. And, and the difference was, the key thing was, is unlike those people who didn't survive, they were the ones who said, hey, we're going to be gone by Easter. We're going to be out by Christmas. And when those things never happened, it ate a small piece of their, their resilience away until they had no more left to give. Whereas he never really said that. He said, I'm going to embrace, you know, embrace the brutal facts of my reality now but I know I'm going to survive and I know I'm going to win at some point. 
And, you know, this is also reflected, you hear a lot of Navy SEALs and other special operators reflect that same ethos in some, you know, funny memes or funny things where they'll, they'll have t-shirts that say embrace the suck, you know, which is, you know, it's all about attitude and perception or perspective. And you say, I know today's going to be a hard day. And you'll hear the Navy SEALs, they'll say, well, the only easy day was yesterday. So it's this embracing and not woes me of the situation you're in and recognizing that it is hard, but always having that eternal hope for the future. I think this is so relevant in what we are all experiencing right now. And thank you for sharing that as a non-American, that is actually the first time I have ever heard that story. And it is amazing to me how leadership doesn't just come in the shape of how you lead others, but how you lead yourself and how you lead your life, especially in, in very tough uh, events. You know, I always say that you know, it's it, during hardship or during very stressful moments when you actually see what people are made of, but at the same time is who have you been preparing yourself to be uh, for how you face that stressful time. So thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, anything else you'd like to tell us about what the Navy or, you know, all your background taught you in terms of how to operate under stress and maybe how to mitigate it? How do you go about managing when you end up in that situation? Yeah, I think, I think uh, obviously one of the best tools, if you know anything, if you, I know you know, because you spent some time around me that, uh, Naval Aviation is a highly uh, reflective and learning organization, and we spend a lot of time debriefing because we understand that uh, even when you're operating and executing, you can treat it as training, but only if you take the time to learn and reflect. And I love that because that one skill set or that one training, that one discipline can inform so many things that uh, will help you be successful in life, whether you're in the military or not. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time on learning how to professionally debrief ourselves. And why is that important? Because I think when you're dealing with stress or crisis, there's a couple of things that maybe ways you can um, tackle it, if you will. So the first thing is, is you've got to kind of know and be able to anticipate what are the types of things that cause stress? We all know that we all react to different situations differently. But in general, I think there's a, a few things that we can say, by and large, to some degree, most people are going to have the opportunity to have stress from a few types of things. So it's really important to know what those are. So let's talk about that. Uh, you know, maybe you can tell me what a few are, are for you. But, you know, one of the things is we know that can cause stress or anxiety for people is confusion. How, what can cause confusion? Too much information, too much complexity when maybe we perceive it should be more simple than that. The other thing, uh, like the example I gave before with confusion, is stimulus overload. So stimulus overload can cause confusion, which then can lead to anxiety or stress. So another thing that could cause it is disappointment. So not having our expectations met can most certainly cause disappointment. Disappointment can weigh on your positivity uh, and outlook of things, which again leads to stress and anxiety. 
the other things that are our fear what do we fear um there's many things that you know there's entire studies of what people fear but just a few you know that are you know certainly someone in aviation would be would be letting someone down in my case I don't know that I feared it, but one of the things that I really was focused on not doing was letting the people on the ground not down, not letting them down uh, when when they required our services to protect them. So, you know, that that could also translate into what some people call performance anxiety or realizing that you have to meet a level of performance and whether or not you're going to deliver that. And then uh, the other things that can cause stress or um, not having situational awareness, you know, maybe that's the same as confusion, but really I would just say um, not really understanding what's going on around you can frustrate you. And again, I think that can lead to stress and anxiety. So I don't know, are there any other things that you think lead to the stress that are out there? I think also from our work, as you know, with uh, understanding different personality styles, I think different people will be triggered by different things. So I see some people that get very, very stressed by uncertainty. Uh, for example, I'll give you a, a, something that's happening right now. You know, in Spain, we have been in, a, in an active confinement for a few weeks now. And for some people, what is really, really stressful is the not knowing when this is going to be over. And, you know, the reality is we all are living in a very uncertain situation right now. So uncertainty, I think, is a big one. I think for other people, and this would be more applicable to myself, I'm okay with dynamic environments, change and uncertainty. I do have a little bit of an issue uh, that, that I immediately kind of triggers stress for me if I feel that I don't have control over something I should have control of. So if, if I'm not in control of something that I believe if I was in control of would be beneficial for myself and others, that tends to trigger my stress as an example. Yeah. And I think it's really good because if we can start to have a conversation about what are the things that are going to cause stress for us, then we can plan for it. And plan for it is to look actively uh, to do a few things. So if we can plan for it, we can now look for the, the, the triggers, but more importantly, we can look at our own symptoms of when we know we're stressed so once we know then we can mitigate and then we can execute appropriately so you know for me when i talk about okay how do i know that i'm stressed you know for someone who deals with stress i would say pretty well i should have i should be because one i've had a lot of training around it but two i couldn't have been successful if i wasn't very good at it for that long but so for me i have to really recognize some pretty subtle things for me to know that i'm actually stressed and because stress doesn't bother me, like the idea of being stressed doesn't bother me, which is not the same necessarily with, say, my wife. The idea of being stressed to her stresses her out. The idea of being stressed to me doesn't bother me at all. So it's very difficult sometimes if I wasn't so reflective to know what I'm stressed about. But one of the ways I've been able to figure out how I know I'm stressed is one, I asked my wife, who knows me pretty well. 
because she's noticed things that I probably didn't even know about myself. But you know, here are some of the ways that I know that I'm stressed. And again, I don't see stress as a negative thing. I actually see it as fuel for performance. But again, that goes back to my attitude and perception around things that I want to control. So I like stress. I think it's a necessary, almost as much as oxygen if you want to be a high performance person. But here's how I know that I'm stressed. I will take deep breaths. One is that's a calming agent for me to process, uh, maybe not talk and, and think before I speak. The other thing that I didn't realize, uh, I would be right before a combat mission, I'd be in the, in the ready room and I'd you know, be maybe uh, what we call chair flying my mission. In other words, visualizing piece by piece what it is I'm doing, so preparation. And I'd be sitting there yawning and people would be like, oh my gosh, are, are you tired? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm perfectly relaxed, uh, you know, and I'm perfectly rested. I later found out by reading that yawning uh, can be an indicator that your body is trying to get as much oxygen as it can to the brain so it can be at its highest peak performance. So I always thought that was interesting is I would see some really steely-eyed uh, aviators yawning on the most complex stressful missions. And I, I had no idea until I'd done that reading why I was someone who would yawn. Um, and you look almost disengaged, although most, some people would be very physically agitated in a stressful situation. Um, so, you know, deep rash yawning. And then uh, the other thing is, is, you know, you and I've talked about this before. I, I sleep for about three and a half to four and a half hours a night. And when I'm when I'm really on it and I got stuff to do, I'm really close to that three and a half hour mark. And uh, I will tell you, like even this morning, prior to this podcast, I was pretty excited about it. And I was up after three and a half hours thinking, okay, what about this and what about that? And so that may be stress, but again, I don't see it as a negative thing. So you know, that's how I know I'm stressed. What about what about you? In my case, Dan, I can actually feel the triggers coming in from a biological standpoint, kind of like your example of yawning and taking deep breaths. So for me, I can feel my jaw starting to clench. My hands get a little bit sweaty. I can also feel I get a more short in terms of my breath. My breathing is actually on the, in contrast to yours, instead of going to deeper breaths, I could see that I'm almost holding my breath where I'm not really uh, breathing often enough. Uh, so my, my body very quickly tells me when I'm starting to get stressed or annoyed, which sometimes translates very similar in terms of how it feels for me. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's, a, that's say, just a, a little bit about how I feel it. Yeah. And I would say, you know, having worked with you closely uh, for many years now that you know, you're very measured. And uh, I think you'd have made a great fighter pilot because I've seen you in <laughs> stressful situation and you handle it really, really well, better than probably most. So, uh, you know, whatever it is uh, you do, however, however yeah. you process it, you do it very well. Thank you. I, I think that's been a, it's been a lot of intentional work and self-development to get there. I remember at the beginning of my career getting feedback a couple of times that, when I was stressed or annoyed that it definitely showed in my face and somebody made a comment like, well, you really, really don't want to be playing poker. I was like, okay, I got the message. You know, I need to work on my 
external uh, body language and what other people are perceiving because you, you know you don't want to impose that on other people and right now uh, being in close proximity in many cases with our families we have to also watch out how we're dealing with that stress and staying calm so that we're not impacting the people around us uh, negatively. So I think that that's important. So Dan, is there anything else you want to mention? So you've taught us about how to recognize some of the things that are happening. Uh, you've brought in some of the, the conversation around attitude and, and perspective and perception. And I also like the fact that you mentioned that if you're maybe not as self-aware around what, what stresses you and how it, is it, how it manifests, manifests itself, that is a great idea to ask your, your partner or significant other or people who know you very, very well because most of the time they'll be able to tell you. So those are great takeaways that, that we're hearing so far. Anything else you want to share with us on this part around mitigation or you know things that we need to do to recognize that better yeah i i think um you know we've alluded to it a little bit you know I'm, I'm a big attitude and mindset but i talked a little bit about it is i look at things like um you know maybe one of the other tells of where i know maybe i'm feeling stress is you know i'm a, i'm a bit of a, a neat freak and um if i really want to be uh, focused I'll come in and I'll clean even if everything's somewhat clean already I want to be really organized so then that way I can perform pretty high but I look at um, organization uh, allows me to then sit down and very clearly start to plan you know planning is a, a key process in the military and you know we do long-term planning uh, months and years out, very complex planning all the way up until real-time planning just before execution. And then uh, that allows for us to be much more successful in dealing with change because a lot of times, uh, you know, take for instance what's going on right now with COVID-19. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people are stressed, whether it be financial, whether it be anxiety about their own health, the health of the people that they love. But the other the other thing that's just natural with something like that is just like you said, the simple change of not going to work, of not having a routine and, you know, planning uh, day to day, like what we were doing tomorrow, even in this change will provide some level, at least to someone like me, a level of calming effect, because now if I know I've planned now, when those things come to fruition based on the plans that I made, that is comforting to me because I'm like, okay, I can control that. I can deal with that. So that's a mitigation strategy for me, uh, you know, in addition to having a great attitude and a positive outlook, you know, I'm definitely a glass half full person, not a glass half empty. And I do love to plan because I like to plan to win. As you know, I like to plan to be successful. Another mitigation yes. strategy, I, I know that you do this, uh, probably more discipline than I do, is be physical. You know, in other words, uh, work out or uh, yeah. do something that's going to get you up out of your chair. We all know that that can help our mental state, makes us feel better. Um, I know it does for me. You know, what do you feel? I know you use it as a as a mitigation strategy. It's it's actually huge and interestingly enough, uh, within this current situation and within confinement, 
I have found it to be even more important. So that is the way I start every day is with exercise and knowing that I actually have my personal trainer. I dial him on FaceTime and we work out. I have my staff here and knowing that at least I have that part of a routine to hold on to, like you said, is very fulfilling and calming at the same time. I just want to mention one quick thing that came to mind uh, listening to to you talk about how to deal uh, with uh, the routine, like you said, planning for it. Yesterday, there was a, a fascinating program that they put on the Spanish TV to help people understand how to deal with this uh, new situation of all of us being confined for the time being. And they showed people who have to work in space. So astronauts, they showed nuns who are uh, you know basically confined for most of their life and and people who are at sea sometimes for eight months and they all one of the things that these very different people had in common is they all suggested a routine a plan that of what you're going to be doing to stick to that plan create habits that make you feel like you've accomplished things during the day and not underestimate the value of getting up at a certain time, getting uh, dressed. It's almost like you know putting your uniform on in a way, uh, even if we're in a situation that doesn't require us to do so. That routine and that planning really helps our minds to be able to deal with the external stressing factors that are coming in. So Dan, if you don't mind, I do have a, a question because you have talked about the different missions you have been on a little bit and different experiences that you've had but I wonder because for example when you said you landed on the aircraft carrier it almost sounded like that was all it was stressful it was still fairly within your comfort zone because you were able to face it with the right attitude and perception and perspective can you tell us a situation or an example where you've been really pushed outside your comfort zone and how or if and it's okay if, it, if you weren't able to, but how or if were you able to figure it out and stay calm despite being heavily outside your comfort zone and potentially in a crisis? Yeah, that's a, a great question because we're all dealing with that right now. Um, I think the, the thing that comes to mind the most is, you know, as you know, uh, we've talked a little bit about here, I was a professional aviator in the Navy. Obviously, I had a lot of leadership responsibilities that I took. Uh, solemnly, you know, the, the the personal and professional growth of my people is probably the things I was most interested in. But, um, you know, the thing that comes to mind is uh, in 2011, I was on the USS Ronald Reagan as a commander uh, in an F-18 squadron. And for some of you, you may remember that there was a tsunami and that tsunami created uh you know, an earthquake a, a situation where we had flooding. I mean, it was like, you know, Armageddon in Japan that eventually damaged a couple of their nuclear facilities uh, in Fukushima and throughout the country. They, they had this huge nuclear fallout happening coupled with this huge humanitarian crisis where people have either lost their homes, flooded, stranded, injured, and all the infrastructure was compromised. So it was very difficult for a short period of time for the Japanese government, its military, and anyone actually on 
uh, in Japan themselves to actually help and respond because it was so overwhelming. We were, uh, I was on the Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier and our battle group uh, was diverted off of our combat mission to go help because obviously Japan is an important ally of the United States. So we showed up and I had previously lived in Japan for three years. And so I have a, a strong love and affinity for the culture and for the people there. And they were asking for a volunteer who had the right experience to go and represent the battle group at what they called the BJOC or the Bilateral Joint Operations Command Center. You know, we love our acronyms in the military. So I fly off voluntarily off the Ronald Reagan, um, who's now dodging nuclear uh, clouds of air off the coast to help respond, to help staff this response team that was going to decide how could the US military and US government bring its resources to bear to help in this humanitarian rescue. And normally that type of staff is flown in from the military. It's very planned for, as you might imagine, the construct of it. And I was just gonna be a cog in the wheel. I was gonna be the Navy representative that just happened to show up and be able to provide information you know, to the Air Force people who were staffing this and leading this endeavor. But what became pretty apparent right from the beginning was uh, the Air Force and just like the Japanese government and the Japanese military, it wasn't that they weren't completely unable to respond. Their response was just sh for a short period of time muted because of the fact that they required land operations, they, re they require roads. And the, you know, one of the benefits of the US Navy aircraft carrier is that you can fly helicopters off of it and you can conduct operations using the other ships and you can go find people on beaches and help. And so because we were kind of off the island, we actually could provide and lead support and coordinate support a little more easily early on. So very quickly as an aviator, here I am, although I had had some training in joint operations and staffing, I'd never really run a humanitarian response but I used a lot of the things that I knew from my training on planning, setting an objective, working in small teams, and, and coordinating what I would say small victories to kind of break down this very complex problem that really had a big time component to it. Because if you don't get supplies to people who are isolated quickly, you know, they run out of food and water. That is a bad outcome. So I think in that case, this, uh, response to what became called uh, Operation Tomodachi. It was a great success, although a terrible tragedy. It was a great success showing the US Navy's resolve as a partner and ally for Japan and what we would be willing to do to help them out. So I think in that case, I, I had to find myself now almost leading this operation for this entire staff, at least at the beginning, because we were the only ones able to do anything. So in that case, uh, that was certainly a bit of a duck out of water uh, as from an aviator perspective. Luckily, I'd had some training in uh, process discipline and planning that really helped. And also understanding the Japanese people, culture helped me integrate with their liaisons pretty well, I thought. But, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, helped me be successful there was, um, you know, they, they have a saying, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I controlled what yeah. I could control. 
<laughs> you know, I controlled what I could control. I took it one day at a time. I had a great attitude. I had a, an attitude that despite the, the problems of every day, I believed that we were going to be successful. And I started to, you know, try to lead the team to say, you know, what are the victories we're having every day? Let's not focus on the negatives. Let's focus on how we can do well today and a slightly bit better tomorrow. And that helped. So listening to you, one of the takeaways that I have, you know, we are speaking quite a bit about attitude. And my reflection is that attitude is very much a choice. However, it's a choice that gets easier and easier to make the more you exercise it in a certain way. And what I mean by that is if you are choosing or giving yourself into a negative attitude or a, a victim attitude, it gets easier and easier and easier to go down that path because that's what we are almost training our brains to, to do, you know, using that path of least resistance. But if you commit to and choose a positive attitude, a winning mindset, a mindset that knows how to deal with stress when it comes, an attitude that says, you know, I am going to overcome this, like you said with the with the gentleman that was captured in Hanoi, you know, that that also becomes easier because you're making that choice over and over again and it starts to become easier. So that was a reflection from listening to you that I think is something that maybe you don't even realize that all, all this time choosing that positive and winning attitude has led it to become easier for you to be able to do that. And I think that's a reflection that all of us can take away is what are we choosing in terms of our attitude and what adjustments do we need to make to make sure we're serving ourselves greatly in this current time? Yeah, I think that, you know, you would imagine that someone who's going to be successful in Navy, naval aviation would have to have, you know, maybe the system, maybe the training and maybe the way they select people, you know, looks for people who have that sort of attitude and that resilience and whatnot. And then I think they train and, and probably reinforce it. Uh, you know, I think it is very powerful. And one of the things I've learned, I think the framework, and I would almost call it the science behind it. I mean, that's how I always was and how I was trained and how I felt. Since I joined Equilibria, one of the things that I loved is how you all, um, when I joined, you had mapped out how the different people, because not everybody's like Dan Baxter, not everybody's like Laura, um, you know, we're all different, how you had mapped out how people, the different personalities see, assess, and mitigate risk and stress around them. And it's fairly predictable, as we know uh, from what we teach, that the way you can reduce the stress um, and what you can give to people as leaders, you know, to help reduce their stress is very easy to predict. And that was a tool I didn't have in the military was that clear understanding of how different people predictably need certain things from me as a leader. I think I did it instinctively and, per, and perhaps was maybe more lucky than predictably good. And had I had the understanding I have now since I've joined Equilibria about how predictable it is to give people what they need so that you do reduce their anxiety and you do increase their confidence in moving forward. For instance, 
you know, whether that be some people prefer more the why, some other people want to understand details on how, and other people just, they don't want very much information. They just want to know the what. And, and so all the different ways that you as a leader can give people what they need, whether that be your family members, whether that be the people that work for you, with you, or that you work for, the more you can give them the information the way they need it, um, the better you can be to help them navigate what it is they're going through, whether it be now with COVID-19 or anything in the future. And I really have enjoyed learning that since I've been uh, learning from you, Laura, and, 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 and Lewis at Equilibria. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Don. And I want to point out for our listeners, so if you are interested in understanding what Don is describing regarding different personality styles, uh, you can see on our website, uh, equilibria.com, uh, which is also included in the summary of this podcast. You can see a little bit more about that and find out uh, what we're referring to when it comes to different personality styles. I just wanted to point that out down so our listeners know where to find that information. Th yeah. So th and thanks, I, thanks for that, Tom. Yeah, I, and I'm glad you point out where it is because, you know, I spent all this time in the military and one of the very basic things that you're taught, leadership 101, if you will, whether it be at the Naval Academy, whether it was at Valley Forge Military Academy in high school, or whether it was in the United States Navy and some of our professional grooming courses, one of the first things you learn is to be a good leader and to be a good teammate is you have to know yourself and know other people. And uh, mm -hmm. I won't get into it too much because it's beyond the scope. Maybe it's a different podcast is the military doesn't do a good job giving you an actual tool to know yourself and know other people. I think they almost groom people to um, that maybe are self-reflective that can do that naturally. But, you know, I really benefited from getting that tool. And, um, and I think that's even helped me after so many years of being successful, you know, we can always learn and grow. So um, yeah, if y'all haven't seen that, done that, uh, go for it and take it. I think it's a, it's a good thing. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, how to know you're under stress, how to mitigate some of that. And then, you know, if I were to think about how we execute during stress, you know, to be successful, you know, I think some of the things that we use were a, a term called compartmentalization. Have you ever heard that term before, Laura? I have heard it, but I'm not going to attempt to say that word with my second language, English, but I have heard it before. Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, the fact that uh, I, I couldn't do anything, I can barely speak my own language, so it's hard enough for me to say. But actually, <laughs> compartmentalization is one of the key components we used in naval aviation, and a lot of it is about uh, breaking complex things down. But I would say it's also about breaking down things that would otherwise be maybe overwhelmingly stressful into simple bite-sized pieces so that uh, you can be successful and uh, maybe do so with less anxiety or feeling less stress. So compartmentalization is essentially the process of, uh, you know, let me describe it, you know, from the naval aviation, I guess, context. If you're getting ready to launch, after planning a mission for three days off of an aircraft carrier to go work with, say, 25, 26 other aircraft 
off of the ship that you're on, plus an additional, say, four or five aircraft from a different country with people on the ground you've never talked to before, that, there's a lot of complexity to that. And if that's an eight to 10 hour mission, uh, the amount of times that you have to coordinate with people, different frequencies in different countries after flying over two to three different countries. I mean, there's a lot of complexity to do with that. And I, I remember sometimes, especially when I was younger in my career, thinking, holy mackerel, how in the world am I going to do this? And I would go back to my training of compartmentalize. And I remember being taught, they would say, look, you know how to do every piece and part of what it is you're about to do. You just have to take it one bite at a time or put on your different hats at the different points in time along the mission and do that one little piece really well and then just string together little victories. And before you've known it, you've completed the entire mission successfully and done so very predictably and well. And I thought compartmentalization. So what did that look like? So when you're going to take off, all you're worried about is having a successful takeoff, going through all your checklists, flying the aircraft away successfully, and then communicating correctly on the right frequency. That's pretty doable for a pilot with you know years of experience. You can do that. And then the next compartmentalized thing you're doing is you're simply finding the person or the aircraft that you're going to join up with, and you're consummating that rendezvous. Again, very much a part task training thing that you can do that requires a bit of skill, but you know, in of itself is not very difficult for a pilot. And then you do that. And then and then you move on. Okay, now I've got to go get fuel. Okay, all I need to do is get fuel successfully. And so you just break it down into these very simple tasks, even though it's part of a much more complex process. And that really makes it very consumable to your brain and how you feel. So I really enjoyed learning about compartmentalization. And I think we all have to do it, whether we know about that term or not, Laura. I mean, how many times do you have to deal with all the things you have at work and at home? Um, you know, I would imagine that, that you yes, have to separate those things out. Yeah, right? I'm particularly, I'm, again, I, I go back to particularly now where, you know, I, I will tell you, I have been speaking with a lot of working moms who are, now also forced to homeschool at the same time as well as dads homeschool at the same time as you're working from home so that becomes even more key you know how do you pay attention to your child and turn off the background noise from work and then switch back and forth switch back and forth so i think it's even more key in the environment that we're in right now and i love that you talk about this because i think it is important as we go through the day to be able to understand and place ourselves in the compartment that we're in at that point. So Dan, really enjoying our conversation. And one of the things that we've heard quite a bit from you is how you've dealt with stress in with, with your Navy background, the experiences in Japan and all the different missions. As you transitioned back to a civilian world, or actually as you transitioned to working in the corporate environment, do you see some of the skills that you acquired uh, transitioning to that environment as, as key or important? Or what, which of the skills that you acquired during 
the time that you were with the Navy, do you think are the most key ones that you're transitioning to the corporate world? Yeah, I mean, at first you don't know, right? Because you have to get some sort of feedback as to how you're doing. You know, I think you, you show up uh, maybe with as, as much learning from other people, friends that have done it, and then you actually apply it. And then, you know, I think one of the things is you are who you are uh, by and large. But, you know, one of the things that I am is someone who likes to say I'm never set uh, in one set of things and that I can't learn a new trick. So as I transition to, uh, say, outside the military, think about after I left the military, including military high school environment, which was, you know, nine months out of the year, I had spent 28 years of my life. So you know, I was 42 at the time. So 28 out of 42 years, I had been in intense full-time military environment. And so, as you might imagine, uh, you know, you've, I, I saw some success, but you're thinking, wow, can I be equally successful on the outside? And is that going to require something new? So, you know, it's a great question you ask, you know, how much anxiety and stress might you have going, am I going to be equally successful in that environment? And so, I guess a few of the, the things, and you know what, I work with you, so maybe you can give me some feedback uh, in front of everyone if if I get it wrong. But you know, you know, I trust you. But you know, some of the things that I did to to try to deal with the stress successfully, if if there was any, is I really was excited about learning something new. So again, that might be an attitude or a perception perspective thing, but I really not only tried to make myself excited, I tried to make my family, my kids, my wife excited about what that there's a whole, whole new world we're about to go through, new challenges and changes, and isn't it going to be interesting to learn how to be successful in that environment? So I think that was a very similar skill set, but I applied it to the actual transition itself. And okay. then... One of the things that I tried to reflect upon was I really thought that my ability to deal with difficult situations was going to be a competitive advantage for me. So, you know, I'm very competitive. You and I talk about this all the time. Um, I know you're competitive as well. Is I, I, see, sure. deal, I, yeah, I, I see dealing with stress well as a competitive advantage. So I actually thought, boy, if I can get into an industry where being able to deal with stress and high performance is a good thing, that could be a performance discriminator for me for me to be successful. So, you know, I, I think I, I tried to be true to myself and I think for the most part it worked out. I, I tried to, um, you know, I have my growing up kind of acronym was AWE attitude and work ethic, never be second in either one. And so I, I, I tried to bring the awe in my transition to make sure I had the right attitude and perspective and work ethic um, to deal with stress. And, um, and uh, you know, if you've ever read the book or listened to the book by Jocko Willilink, who's a renowned uh, Navy SEAL leader, I think uh, a couple of, one of his book was Extreme Ownership. He has a really good saying in there where he said, discipline provides freedom. And, you know, that kind of is a subcategory of what work ethic, when I say work ethic, never be second. 
is that, you know, his point is if you have the time or you have the discipline to wake up early and outwork the people around you, it's like the opposite of procrastination. It builds in freedom from undue anxiety or from undue stress that you would have because you didn't take the time to outwork the scenario, the people around you. So I, that resonated with me. And I think I've tried to bring that to bear knowing that I'm probably not, you know, as a, as a retired military officer, it's actually very difficult to transition unless you're going to go be an airline pilot or unless you're going to go work in department of defense consulting. It's actually very difficult to, to get people to believe that you might be able to bring value to their organization in such a way that they will actually hire you. So one of the things that I just really thought, well, the only thing I can control is my attitude and my work ethic. I can't control how they perceive um, whether or not I'm gonna bring value. I just have to control what I can control. And I think that's a good tool for people who are dealing with stressful situations is try to really understand what is it that you actually have control over? Because a lot of people create stress for themselves because they're trying to control things that frankly they have no control over. So that was part of a, you know, I guess how I attacked it, good or bad, uh, probably came in a little strong early on in some situations. But uh, I also believed kind of like the Stockdale paradox is um, I may not be doing very well, but I believe I will be successful in the long term. So is that, uh, does that help? It does help. And actually having worked with you, I have to say that it's very easy to forget when we're in a working environment uh, together, uh, your background. And that's why an additional reason I've really enjoyed this conversation is to understand the depth of your experiences and where you come from and a very different perspective that you bring to the table when we're coaching leaders and supporting them to become the best version of themselves for their own good and for the good of their people. So I really appreciated just having this conversation down and you providing that background. And like I said, working with you in a corporate environment, my, my perception is that that transition has been so smooth that sometimes it's e easy to forget where the background that you come from. So I hope you take that as a compliment. I do, especially coming from you, Laura. And, uh, you know, I think that's good because, uh, you know, you'd like to be that leader or that person. I used to always say it's like duck on a pond, right? You, It looks graceful and smooth on the top, but underneath you're churning either inside or beneath the surface very furiously. And if you can do that, you can provide a calm to people in a very kind of maybe not calm situation. And so I've always endeavored to do that. Uh, not only to my own benefit, but for the benefit of either my family or my team members or the people who work for me. And I think great leaders do that. I, I I know you do that really well, and that's why I enjoy working with you because you deal with complexity very well. So I, you know, one of the things, Laura, that uh, I'm big on is we can have lots of great conversations and I enjoy them, but I always like to end with, you know, what's so what's the so what value of listening to this podcast, you know, what can I take away tangibly uh, between you and I, but also amongst our listeners? So I don't know uh, if it'd be okay to transition to, let's try to leave some folks with 
a few tangible things that they might use if they haven't had a system of uh, how to think and deal with stress and anxiety. I would love that. As a very action-oriented person, I always get excited when we get to the action part of the conversation. <laughs> so I'd love to hear your your thoughts on what are some of the key things that our listeners can do, and I'll include myself in that, going forward to learn from the experiences that you've had. I'm sure we've all picked up different things listening to the conversation and listening to your thoughts, but what are some of the key things that you would love for people to walk away with and start trying out and implementing so they can feel and experience different results? Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I want to leave with a, with a couple of thoughts and maybe key tools that might be easy to remember. Um, and then hopefully, you know, that provides some sort of long lasting value beyond just the, uh, few minutes we've shared together. So, you know, when you're talking about um, either some stress you're going through today, like we all are, or stress you may be going through in the future, one of the ways I look at it, you know, kind of that attitude and outlook is dealing with stress is a performance opportunity. For me, stress is a fuel for performance. I know without it, I can't be as successful as I could um, I, without it, I can't be as successful, uh, as if, you know, I was leading a stress-free environment. I don't know that most people look at it that way, but to me, it's like a nitrous oxide for performance is to, is stress. So don't shy away from it, embrace it and know how to deal with it. I think that's just a gen general statement and really get good, uh, at, talking to yourself in a positive way. In other words, tell yourself the good news story of what it's gonna look like when you succeed. Be able to visualize that, be able to tell that story before it even happens. And that will lead for internal resiliency and inspiration. So those are some general comments. Now, let me get to, I guess, um, things that hopefully people can remember. So I think when dealing with stress, what we know, say from equilibrium, what I've learned a bit in all the maybe some of the stories I've told you is different people feel stress for different reasons. So some people are much more in tune with needing to feel a certain way to reduce stress. So for me personally, and you've heard a lot of it, how do I deal with my feelings about a situation? For me, it's attitude and perception or attitude and work ethic. So if I have the right attitude and the right work ethic, those two things will, will insulate my feelings about the stress that I'm either having or, or maybe gonna have in a situation. So the awe principle, right? Those can address my feelings about a situation. If you're a person who really likes tasks, like I think you do, Laura, right? You like the task side of things, maybe the what oh, it's now. my it's my main motive my, my yeah. main motivator is getting task completed right. so here it is i'm saving the best for last for you laura you know people hey. who care about people who care about the what and the how you know the tasks like what can you do to deal with stress i created an acronym for you because i'm a good aviator and we love our acronyms so the word is scope s-c-o-p-e and here's you know you're scoping out the situation 
So what does it stand for? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what they mean afterwards. I'll tell you the words first. S, simplify. C, communicate. O, organize. P, plan. And then E, execute and learn or just execute. So scope, simplify, communicate, organize, plan, execute. So the, that's a process to deal with stress if you want a, a checklist of things to do. So let's, you know, very quickly, what does uh, simplify mean? Maybe it's that compartmentalization I was telling you about, breaking complex things down into simple things that you know you can do. I don't know what you think about that one, Laura. Anything else on how you would simplify? Do you think that's a good one? I think that is a very good one. And like you said, that goes back to how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. I think if you simplify tasks uh, and you simplify something that could be perceived as a very big job into simple tasks and steps, then it becomes a lot easier and less stressful in general. So I, I love the whole concept of scope or, or scoping because that allows you to, you're scoping out your stress to be able to deal with it in an efficient way. Yeah, exactly. And then communicate is, you know, the first thing you, you should probably do is admit to yourself that you're stressed or tell other people that you're stressed. And we talked about some of those cues, but you know, you gotta have the humility to admit that if you're not stressed, at least the situation is stressful. And I have to do that quite a bit myself. I may not feel stressed, but I know that it is a stressful situation. So you got to have the humility to do that. But then that humility allows for you to communicate to yourself and to others appropriately about what you need to reduce your stress. So we talked about different people need different things to reduce their stress. You know, some people need more details. Some people need just tell me what we're doing. Some people need tell me who we're doing it with. And some people are like, hey, tell me why we're doing this. But communicate, look, in times of stress, we have to communicate with greater periodicity and greater intentionality. So plan for that. So I simplify could, and communicate. I, more. So I just want yeah. to add one thing to that, uh, Dan. All the people who I've been coaching and working with during this, specifically during this period of uncertainty, one of the things that I find myself repeatedly telling people who are in leadership positions is over-communicate. And what I, what I mean by that is right now, even if it feels like over-communication, it's probably not enough because the more information you can give your people as you know it to be true and as is being received by you, the better, because that way people feel like they are informed. And I think independently of personality styles, I like to use the um, the example of when you're on an airplane, there's nothing worse <laughs> as a passenger when, that when the pilot comes on and they say, oh, you know, we have a problem, blah, blah, blah. And then it goes dead silent for hours and everybody's just sitting there wondering what's going on. And I think most people like to know or prefer giving updates of this is how we're handling it this is what we're doing about it and i think that for companies and leaders and organizations that communication at this time is very key to help uh help reduce other people's level of stress well you bring up a great point laura and, and i'd love to actually talk about this more i see it a lot in the way i used to lead fly 
and now how when we consult and help leaders, there's actually, uh, so we would always fly at least in two plane integrity so we could always back each other up. We call that a section. And if the other plane was dealing with an emergency, um, you know, they're going through procedures, they're verbalizing what they're doing, they're verbalizing what they're seeing. And if communication stopped, you knew immediately in your own cockpit that that person was now getting overwhelmed and that they were very busy. Sometimes we call that snakes in the cockpit. They're dealing with very difficult things, time sensitive things, and potentially things for one reason or another are starting to overwhelm them or it's taking everything they have. And so, you know, we had this, uh, call it prioritization method of, you know, you only have so much brain power, you know, we would call it aviate, navigate and communicate. And the last one being communicate. So not the priority. And so if you, you know, if you think about it, um, I'm hearing some static in the back, but, uh, you know, if if communicate was last and it's the thing that gets cut out, Laura, then if someone stops communicating exactly what you just said, it raises everybody's level of anxiety. For me, it was always an indicator that that leader or that pilot is task saturated and I need to give them more attention and uh, and more time and more focus because they need help. And what that looks like in the corporate world is how many times have you ever come across someone whose email um, has like 10,000 you know, messages in it? Or you yes. call them or you text them and they can't respond for a week. You know, people like that need to spend some time uh, organizing themselves because they, if they can't communicate in a normal day in a responsive way, they're really going to fail in an emergency situation. So I, I think that's a good point that you bring out. So simplify and communicate. Uh, the, the next one, O, is organize. So I, I told you how um, certainly the military train, trains you to be organized, and maybe I always was. My mom says I was always uh, quite the neat kid. But for me, if I'm dealing with a stressful situation, I'll walk into a clean kitchen and probably still wipe down the counters because I really want it clean because I want to be organized so that there's no undue junk in my brain so I can think and perform at a high level. And uh, I look at it and say, look, you don't need to create your own self-induced complexity because you're disorganized and you can't find anything. Any thoughts on that? No, I think you explained that really well, Dan. Yeah, good. And then uh, the next one is plan, you know, and, and from an equilibrium standpoint, uh, we talked about being intentional. I love planning because it makes execution go so much better. But I do believe that having the discipline to think ahead and contingency plan does provide that freedom that Jocko talks about. And it, it reduces anxiety before and during execution because you've essentially almost chair flu what it is you're going to do, there's no way you can't if you took the time to plan appropriately. And I think that really relates very well to what we talk about in Equilibria in terms of intentionality and having an intentional approach, being deliberate in our thoughts, our choices, 
you know, planning how we're going to respond to events that we know are going to trigger uh, certain reactions. So I think that planning is, you know, it's such a huge key to success, especially when it comes to staying calm in stressful situations. So Dan, is there anything else you'd like to share in terms of actions that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with the last one, execute. So all people who are successful can execute with veracity, if you will, so or with zeal and a positive winning mindset. And so certainly uh, I have always tried to have a energetic outlook to whatever it is I'm going to wake up and spend my time doing every day. So I think executing with zeal is a way to bring the right attitude to a very bad situation. And we're all dealing with at least some change at this point. So executing with positive mind, a positive or winning mindset is key in my, it is for me, at least personally. Uh, And that ends out, you know, the awe principle helps me with how I feel about a situation and the scope acronym helps me on what do I do about a stressful situation. And in the end, uh, whatever works for you, because that's how I deal with it, and you'll find something that works for you and that's different, as will our listeners. I would just say, you know, have the humility to end your day with some reflection, some correction, and then an ad- a positive attitude of how you're going to move forward and, and win the next day or be just a little bit better the next day. So reflect, correct, and move forward. And don't take yourself too seriously because you're going to get a lot wrong. You're going to make mistakes. And uh, and that's okay because we never actually fail until we quit or we never actually fail as long as we're learning. So whichever cliche that works for you, uh, I think that's the key. So uh, hopefully that's been helpful. I appreciate the opportunity to relive some old memories, Laura. And, and hopefully this is, if it hasn't been valuable, it's been mildly entertaining to the listeners, I hope. <laughs> Dan, I I would find it hard to believe if people were intentionally listening that they didn't at least pick up one or two lessons that they can take away. And I want to express my sincere gratitude for being on the podcast, for taking the time to share these amazing experiences with us today. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. I've certainly taken a lot away from it, as I know our listeners will too. And the one last thing I would like to say is I want to send a message to people out there who are listening that when, you know, times are getting tough to remember some of the things that Dan mentioned, remember choosing that positive attitude, remember the SCOPE acronym, always have this podcast handy, so maybe write it down as well so that you know where, where to reference, uh, to remember what the acronym stands for, and really know that we appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. And in the next few episodes, we will be bringing other elements of thought leadership to the table that we hope can help people grow and realize their potential. Thank you very much, Dan, for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Laura. Uh, Best of luck to everybody. Uh, Go out, have a great attitude, and whatever you do, dominate. (laughs) Have (laughs) have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.